This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports and business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. There are some of our favorites that have been written and spoken by our very listeners. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And today, we bring you the story of Kurt Anderson, a man whose life was turned around by a company, and Carla Nugent one of the founding partners of that company. Here's Robbie with the story. Kurt Anderson's childhood was pretty normal until tragedy struck. 1987, I lost my brother Brian to a motorcycle accident. And then started getting involved with some alcohol and marijuana. It was just... uh, Instead of turning it into something positive, I took it the wrong way. I just went downhill from there. And uh, I did manage to stay in school and get my GED, though. Just from there, you know, the, the alcohol got worse and worse. And 21 years old, and, you know, cocaine and reduced to methamphetamines. Was in and out of jail. Didn't really have a good job or anything like that or a career. I was just in and out of restaurants, doing short order cook type work. You know, I had met a girl, we had some kids together, and I was pretty much a knucklehead all through my 30s. She actually ended up leaving me because I was just out of control. I would pay the bills or whatever, but other than that, it was, I was just in my addiction. Started getting felonies and getting in trouble with the law. Caught my first felony and 2002, 2003, somewhere in there, and was given a chance to do probation. Didn't do do so well at that. Did it for about two months and then kind of went AWOL, so to speak. (laughs) Ended up catching another felony case on felony probation, and they gave me uh, five years ISP, intense supervised probation. I did okay with that for about, not quite a year. Ended up catching another case, which was my third felony. So they sent me to DOC on that one, Department of Corrections. 2005, I went to prison, three year sentence. Well, I was denied for parole. Pretty much did the whole time. So I was released in late 2008. In Colorado, you have a mandatory parole. So I did good on that, completed my parole, was doing okay, was, was pretty much clean off of meth for, for my whole time on parole. And then uh, once I got off parole, dove right back into my addiction again and caught another felony, 2010, for my fourth, fifth, and sixth felony. They were trying to make it a habitual crime that like enhances your sentence so I was looking at like 20 years DOC I was lucky enough to, to get the opportunity to go to Pier 1 it's a therapeutic community I got to Pier 1 on uh, 9-11-12 they call it your clean day is what they call it when you, the day you enter the program 
the graduation percent is only like 11 or 12 percent of the people that go to that program actually complete it. They uh, pretty much try to reprogram the, your whole way of thinking. You know, the first six months you don't have any contact with your family. It's pretty intense. They kind of want you to get really in touch with yourself. Bad decisions that you've made, be done with them. Get them out there, talk about it. Because see, that was me. I never talked about my problems. And Oh, I don't have a drug problem. I, I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I'm okay where I'm at. You know, I mean, the rent's paid. There's food's, food's in the fridge. But I'm not home for four or five days because I'm out ripping and running, you know. So, you know, they just they want you to really be okay with who you are and, and where you want to go in your life. After I progressed through the program, I got to the part where I could go out and find a job. Immediately went back to the restaurant and I was just like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I just, I don't like it. It reminded me of the old me. And then I was blessed enough to meet somebody in the program that had got hired on at Wayfield and said, well, why don't you go try to be an electrician? They put you through school. It's a great company. I said, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'll go do that. <laughs> and that's what I went and did in 2014, February, is when I got hired at Wayfield. Carla Nugent is one of the founders and chief business development officer at Wayfield Group, one of the top electrical contracting companies in Colorado. At Wayfield, they believe that just because you have a past doesn't mean you can't have a future parents come up to me at some of these different events we do and just start crying and you know thank you for giving my son an opportunity like he had made these bad decisions hanging around the wrong people he's such a good kid but then when he got out of you know his um, sentencing nobody would give him a job and believe in him um, maybe fast food maybe lawn service but nobody would look at him as far as a career and you guys treated him um, as anyone else that you would hire you know and weren't cautious about his background, looked at it as that's a bad decision, now let's move forward and make good decisions. And so those stories are like, wow, we're making a systemic change, right? And sharing those stories, I think, um, is powerful and important. And the thing I've been surprised is when we started to do this years ago, uh, we thought it's the right thing to do. We didn't know that we'd have high success rate, right? We bring somebody in, we didn't know what to expect. We thought we're gonna believe the best in them, set up a program, move forward. And quickly, these individuals were at a point of like, I've made bad decisions, I'm at a point of accountability, and I'm ready to go and start a career. And you were just listening to Carla Nugent, and she is one of the founding partners of the Wayfield Group. And again, it's one of Colorado's largest electrical contracting companies. And what a heart they have for people. You're also hearing from Kurt Anderson, who was just, well, he was lucky that someone was out there to really give him a second chance. Also lucky to be a part of that Pier 1 therapeutic community that really got him thinking differently about his life and about his future. When we come back, more from Carla and Kurt Anderson here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Wayfield Group, the Colorado electrical contracting company that finds much of its success in treating people, well, like people. Here's more from Carla Nugent, the woman who helped start Wayfield Group, and Kurt Anderson, a man whose life Wayfield changed for the good. My passion for nonprofit community, you know, for Christ and starting Wayfield Group, and that no matter what we did, I wanted to figure out how we could give back to the community. And it was nice because we were all on the same page on the partnership side that that's the right thing to do. When we started, um, none of my partners knew Christ, um, did not have that faith, have different stories. And um, so it was neat how they still trusted my dreams and my vision and my faith and doing the right thing and um, play it forward now 18 years later. Uh, two of them do know the Lord. But it's just neat to see how God's um, used that, I think, soften their hearts and how we care for our people here at work and it's become part of our culture now, right? Where we have our values are, are packed, P-A-C-T, people, advanced processes, community, and trusted relationships. Everything we do, we make very simple to bring back to that. Um, we want our employees, we want to be known for that through our employees, but also on the customer side, that we're all about our people. And we build really cool projects, but it's our experiences with people that we share our time with. Yeah, I'm not the typical person you probably run into in our industry. We're probably 8% of construction would be um, made up of women. I appreciate, I think, being a woman in our industry, and I think I can pull off things that maybe some can't, and I can push some of um, the values, people, that heart piece that maybe other construction companies wouldn't even think about. And uh, for me, I want our employees to know that we care about them and value them. And again, it's not about the job, but we're praying for their safety. I pray for the jobs we're pursuing are not just to go get a new, big, shiny project and take care of this customer. These are jobs for our families. You know, we provide now for over 600 employees and families. Sometimes in construction you can get very in an execution mode. We have all these activities to do on this deadline, it has to happen, and um, sometimes the pleasantries can come out of that. And so how do you keep the human element that we have all these things to execute, but how can I do it where you are valued and you are heard and um, we're working as a team and we're collaborating instead of just, you know, yell and scream and that's going to motivate you, you know, looking at it in a different way like, you know, how do we honor our employees and we're thoughtful on how we treat them and respect them and build them up, train them, invest in them, believe in them. So we do believe we invest in our people, we care for our people, they care for our customers, they make happy clients, it's this whole, you know, cycle. And it's neat to see how God's just blessed those decisions when you look at financially of what are all the things we want to have better benefits than our competition and pay for full health insurance for our employees, pay for all of their training and invest in all these things that we celebrate and giveaways and fun. We're always, there's some employee of the month and we give a ton of stuff away and uh, we want it to be fun to work here and figure out how we connect individuals and challenge them to give back to their community and get in, enrolled in our different kind of programs we do with charities and make it fun but have folks think about like gosh God's blessed me I'm an electrician at this company and I can get back to my community there's a charity I can get passionate about I can give up my time not just money 
And if everybody thought that way, right, what a better community that we'd have, better city that we'd have. I'm so thankful for them for hiring me and putting me through school and teaching me the way, the way to go. I've been blessed to have the people in my life at Wayfield that I have, especially Carla and Brad and James and Pete. Just a bunch of great human beings here. They're like family. If I ever had any problem with anything, I'd, that'd be the first people I would call. So I know I can rely on them for anything. Since day one, um, Brad told me, I don't care what you've done, I care about what you want to do, where you want to go with your life from this moment forward. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, you get judged a lot based on what you do. And whether it's negative or positive, you know, you just have to make the right choice. So, yeah, I was, I was blessed to, to get the interview and get hired and just, I said, I'm gonna take this one all the way. You know, uh, being a recovering addict, you know, I was just miserable for years and years and was always unhappy and just, after I got into Pier 1 and then I decided I'm not going to be miserable no more. I'm going to, I'm going to live life. And I feel that God wants me to be happy and just enjoy life. But man, it's easy to be miserable and negative and grumpy and just I don't want that no more. So I wake up every day and I'm happy just to wake up and have a great future at Wayfield. It's amazing. I actually have seven years clean and sober, most I've ever had in my life since I began my in my path down that road, so. I'm grateful to Wayfield. Um, I'm gonna give them 110% every day that I go to work. My dad once told me, if, uh, if you're not early, you're late, so. I show up early to work. If they need me to stay late, I stay late. You need me to come in Saturday, I'm coming in Saturday. And that's just how it is. You know, um, I was blessed to get this opportunity to come have a career here. I'm going to give it my all, so, yeah. I'm going to stay with Wayfield until I retire, <laughs> and then probably until I die. I'm so happy where I'm at in my life. And, you know, there's other companies that are out there, and, you know, you hear that a lot when, when you're in this trade, you know, you see so many faces in construction. and oh, you're still at Wayfield, that's cool, and blah, 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 you should come over. I'm like, I'm okay. I'm making the most money I've ever made in my life. I have a 401k, I, I'm good. I'm buying my house, I don't need more money. I'm happy where I'm at, they pay me perfect. I'm okay. So I have no desire to go anywhere else. You could offer me twice as much money and I would, that's not about the money. I'm comfortable in life where I'm at and that's thanks to Wayfield Group. And great job to Robbie and to Alex for putting this piece together. And my goodness, it has so many of the elements that we care about here on this show. That authentic voice of the small business owner, her faith. Well, there it is for all to hear and what she does and all the good that got done because of her faith. And also, we heard from Kurt Anderson and his voice 
And my goodness, his honesty, his stark honesty about his life and how he lived it. And we love when people can come clean like that and talk about the turnaround in their lives. And there is hope in a story like this. And my goodness, it comes from so many different avenues. That Pier 1 program was essential. Without it, well, Kurt couldn't have taken the next step. But then came, well, then came Carla and that hand, that helping hand, and offering this man a job. And by the way, Carla and Wayfield Group have done this in the low hundreds of times, lending a helping hand and a job to these at-risk individuals. And my goodness, a job at this company isn't just a J-O-B. It's hope, it's love, and my goodness, it's so much more. And what a thing for Kurt Anderson to experience was that kind of hope at a time when he needed it most. And last but not least, there were just a couple of things that Kurt said that, well, really, really moved me. I've been blessed to have these people in my lives, he said of Wayfield Group. They're a bunch of great human beings. And for anybody listening who owns a company, runs a business, or runs anything, you got to be asking yourself, is, is that what your people are saying about you? He also said, I'm grateful to be here. I'll give 110% every day. I'll show up early to work. I'll stay late. If they need me on Saturday, I'm there. That's just the way it is. And that's just the way it is. Wayfield Group, their story. Carla Nugent's story. Also, Kurt Anderson's story. Here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and you're listening to some music by Fred Davis, recorded in the South Euclid, Ohio home of Howard Yusuk back in August of 1969. And you're thinking, who's Howard? Big record producer? Not exactly. These days, Howard is the vice president of research and publications at the Manhattan Institute, a free market think tank in New York. But back in 1969, he was a young man who loved the blues, and he was so impressed by his friend, Fred Davis, he wanted Fred's music recorded. That's a friend. Let's hear more about this from Howard himself, here performing a piece published in the City Journal entitled, The Fred Davis Blues. I always wondered what might have happened to Fred Davis. I'd be reminded of him by the half-inch reel-to-reel tape recording of his music, of which I always took special care. 
I believed that music would be his ticket out of Cleveland's Huff Ghetto. When we lost touch, I assumed that nothing like that had happened. When I finally found out what had happened, it was both better and tragically worse than I'd imagined. He was a childhood friend in a way. We met when I was 19 in the summer before my second year of college. We both made our way early each morning through the stinging, low-hanging smog mist of Cleveland's industrial Cuyahoga River Valley to the factory where we unloaded 100-pound sacks from freight cars, piling them onto wood pallets. But our lives up to that point could not have been much more different. He was about a decade older, came to work by bus, sent by a day labor agency, and he had thick, strong arms that reflected time spent in prison. I drove the old Ford my father had bought me. I strained to lift, knowing that if I failed, I'd reflect badly on my dad, given his executive role in the front office. We learned by chance of our shared enthusiasm for the same music. Southern-born blacks outnumbered hillbillies in the shop, so the radio was tuned to either of Cleveland's two AM rhythm and blues stations. It amused both groups, though, when, to pass the time, I'd sing along, as I did one day to Chains of Love, Bobby Blue Bland's hit single that summer. It's three o'clock in the morning, baby, the moon is shining bright, sitting here wondering, where can you be tonight? It's three o'clock in the morning, baby. Lord, and the moon is shining bright. And oh, it's three o'clock in the morning, baby. And let me tell you, the moon is shining bright. And oh, I was just sitting here wondering, Lord, where can you be tonight? Lord, yeah. I learned that before he'd gone to prison in his hometown of Kansas City, Fred had played piano and guitar there professionally until he said he made the innocent mistake of carrying something for someone. Drugs, it turned out. It led to several years in the joint, as he put it, in the parlance of the 1950s hipster, in which an apartment was a crib and a girlfriend an old lady. I saw how well he could play during lunch break one day when I had brought my guitar to the job. When most of the others went across the street to drink, the two of us sat at a table outside where he played and sang. You could hear the Kansas City influence the more you listened. The jazz blues arrangements of Jay McShann confessing the blues. Here 
I stand before you with my heart in my hand. I want you to read it, Mama, hoping that you'll understand. Well, baby, Mama, please don't dog me round. I'd rather love you, baby, than anyone else I know in town. The complex arrangements of Dinah Washington. What a difference a day makes. What a difference a day makes. Harder-edged but still smooth stylings of Lowell Folsom or Eddie Boyd, Five Long Years. Fred had a full set of his own originals, too, and he sang them with a piercing, high, tearful voice from deep, slow blues like Midnight is Falling. complicated tunes, subtle and swinging, with a hint of T-Bone Walker. Tell me pretty baby, tell me so, am I yours, cause I want to know, cause the way you've been mistreating me, mm-hmm. it's got me feeling low. Our relationship evolved to one of teacher and student. He showed me how to play all up and down the guitar using big, rich chords fingered in an unorthodox way, his thumb wrapped under and up the neck. I later taught the fingering to my son, who uses it professionally. He gave stern, uncompromising musical advice. Don't play too loud and don't play too fast. Eventually, we'd spend time together after work at a small house owned by his girlfriend, Bertha Reed, 
a professional test kitchen cook in the heart of Cleveland's East Side Ghetto. She appreciated my interest in Fred, I think, but it seemed to me that she'd also grown tired and skeptical of his music dreams. He didn't play much around the house, she said. And when we come back, more of Howard Usick's remarkable story about his friend, Fred Davis. This is how music connects people, folks, across every race, across every class. When we come back, more of this great story here on Our American Stories. been listening to the story of bluesman Fred Davis and his friendship with Howard Husick back in 1969. As Fred taught Howard more about music and the two grew closer as friends, Howard got an idea. At some point I resolved, idealistically, perhaps patronizingly, to rescue him. It would be my callow mission to restore him to his career in music. This was 1969, the summer of Woodstock. Civil rights, racial justice, they were in the air, even after the King assassination. Obscure blues musicians from Mississippi John Hurt to Magic Sam were being discovered or rediscovered by white enthusiasts and introduced to new audiences. I had a business plan, you might say, to record Fred, backed by an amateur blues band of kids I knew from my suburban high school. I asked a friend who had moved to Philadelphia to take the tape to the blues agent, Dick Waterman, who lived there with his then-girlfriend, a young Bonnie Raitt. Waterman expressed interest. I wrote Fred to let him know, and he wrote back in a letter filled with an almost desperate hope. At present, I'm fine and still working like hell. Man, I do hope something comes of that tape just sitting here wishing like hell, but I'm not giving up. I'm still with my old lady. She's tops. Also, I'm still off the alcohol. Well, Cat, I'm going to close for now, but we'll script you later. You do likewise, and especially if you hear something from the tape. So, until later, always a friend, Fred Davis. I'd kindled his hope and felt responsibility to follow through. I arranged to meet with Waterman myself in Boston. He was tough and unsentimental, but sufficiently sold on Fred's music to write a letter on his behalf to Baldwin Wallace College near Cleveland, which had booked one of his clients, Mississippi blues singer Fred McDowell. Would they add Fred Davis to the program? I found his style to be quite good and a very interesting combination of a Kansas City style that also shows some of his earlier Arkansas home as well, Waterman wrote. If you could possibly use him on your program, I'm sure that his pride would be restored and his very fine music would not be abandoned. A whole new life, I hoped, would open up for Fred. Having moved on from the factory job, though, I never heard how it turned out. I never heard again from Fred. I always wondered, I feared, in fact, that I'd given him false hope, meddling unnecessarily in his life and perhaps giving the impression that I was much more connected and capable than I was. 
It was a dynamic of which Dick Waterman was clearly aware, as reflected in his letter to Baldwin Wallace. I have not told Fred that I am writing to you because I don't want him to get his hopes up too high. It was not until just recently, enabled by a subscription to the Ancestry Search Service, that I found out what happened. A review of the digital files of the exponent, Baldwin Wallace College Student Newspaper, reveals that the school's April 10, 1970 folk festival included blues legends, Mississippi Fred McDowell and Muddy Waters, but not Fred Davis. Whether they didn't want to include him, or if he declined for some reason, I can't say. But the story of Fred's fate emerges from public records. An Ohio death certificate dated November 8, 1988, almost 20 years after I knew him, reveals that Fred Davis, 49, identified as a laborer, had died of a gunshot wound to the chest with multiple visceral perforations. A Cleveland Plain Dealer story went further. Two men had robbed him of cash in a liquor store parking lot. When Fred resisted, one of them shot him. Such is the tragedy of talent bleeding out as it does every day in black America. Davis was that year's 122nd homicide in Cleveland. But there was more. Someone had gone to the trouble to write an official newspaper death notice for Fred Dave Davis, son, Oscar and Emma Davis, Kansas City, Missouri, member the Blues Express Band. Blues Express? Had he rebuilt his career after all? Had my encouragement mattered? I could learn the answer to the first question, at least. Blues Express still plays around Cleveland, and I was able to track down its new leader, Crazy Marvin Braxton. He'd taken over after the man he called Dave had died. I was working as a doorman at a hotel downtown, recalls Marvin, when they told me, get to St. Vincent's. That's the charity hospital. Dave's been shot. He was good people, Marvin said, a demanding band leader who always cautioned members, yes, not to play too loud or too fast. With a significant local following, the band played regularly, it turned out, at Fat Fish Blues for mostly white blues devotees, but also at Andy's Lounge in the lower middle class black Buckeye Road neighborhood. Fred had fans, including a pudgy white suburban couple who never missed a gig. He was planning to renovate a new girlfriend's house and to marry her at the time he was shot. He didn't deserve that. Why would somebody shoot him, I asked Marvin. Just for the $1,000 he was carrying? How would they have known? Fred, it turns out, had another side. Everyone needs a hustle, Marvin said. Fred, apparently, was selling liquor illegally from the back of a car. He'd buy it in bulk from the liquor store that he was going into at the time he was shot. The two cousins who held him up knew about Fred's business from their sister, who was a disappointed girlfriend. When we went to Dave's place, Marvin told me, we found hair powder she'd put under his pillow. It was voodoo. One of the two robbers, the actual shooter, hanged himself in a Cleveland jail. His accomplice was sentenced to five to 20 years for manslaughter. Two years later, in 1992, he sought probation, 
citing his Lima Correctional Institution Certificate of Achievement for having completed a substance abuse program, as well as the fact that he hadn't been the one who pulled the trigger. He was a Vietnam veteran. His request was denied. It's a tragically familiar story of black-on-black -black violence. Homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men in the United States. The statistics are grim, but they can't reveal how much talent and how many dreams die each year on Cleveland's east side, on Chicago's south side, or in so many other neighborhoods. My friend's murder was an obscure act of violence, passingly mentioned in the small newspaper story, yet every day such obscure acts silence talent and potential. Was the Fred Davis I had known the same guy who sold bootleg liquor from his car? Had he really been set up all those years before in Kansas City? A search for legal records or newspaper stories about his criminal case comes up empty. The only record of Fred's life in Kansas City is a yearbook photo, circa 1959, from the city's then all-black Lincoln High School, where he was a member of a clean-cut, neatly-dressed class, many of whom an alumni association website shows have gone on to professional accomplishment, as Fred did in his own way. Located near 18th and Vine, the mecca of Kansas City jazz, Lincoln was the school for college-bound black kids. Records show he'd come from a two-parent family, one of 10 children, born to an Arkansas sharecropper who had moved to Kansas City to work for the railroad. Had he always had a dark side? Perhaps an unjust drug bust had soured him. Perhaps a criminal record kept him from having the sort of day job that other Blues Express members had. Maybe he just couldn't stand menial work, not when he knew what it felt like to write a great song and sing the way he could. I still have that tape. It's been transferred and digitized. You can listen to it now on SoundCloud. Just search for Cleveland Blues, Fred Davis. The Lincoln High Alumni Association may be honoring him. I'm interested in recognizing him and for his music to be played again. I admit it, I'm still trying to save Fred Davis. And what a story. And thank you, Howard, for sharing that with us. And we'll do our best by playing Fred's music right now. Howard Usick's story, Fred Davis's story, and sadly, as Howard pointed out, when people get shot like this or killed like this, it's the talent that gets lost. It's a human life that's lost. We can never forget that amongst the grim statistics. He was the 122nd male African-American, many of them in Cleveland, gunned down in 1988. A life cut short, talent cut short. And so we leave with all of us listening to Fred Davis here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. At the early age of four years old, Chris Dupre became the target of a man who was wounded, abused, and seemingly oppressed. This man was a war hero, a highly regarded and beloved teacher by faculty and students. But to the small boy who called this man dad, well, he was a different man. This is a story of forgiveness. My first lesson in physics, force, velocity, speed, is it came when I was four years old. Um, when your dad hits you with a certain degree of force, you end up on the floor really hard. My dad was a World War II vet, ended up on a B-17 as a bombardier. He was shot down over Germany on his 13th mission, landed on a rock and broke his leg in nine places. Ended up with a French underground. The French underground didn't have the medication, so they had to give him to the Nazis. They, they did put a cast on him, they gave him medication, but he was abused of all 1945 until actually General Patton liberated his camp. He was known as Nice Guy Dave before then. He came out of the war to very different people. Went to college, got his teaching degree. I would walk by as a little kid and look through the window and see the kids laughing and him sitting at his desk teaching the class and, and it looked like he was having a wonderful time. But then I knew that same man would drive in the driveway. I'd hear the car door slam and then I knew I was in trouble for something I hadn't even done. I became the brunt of, of his anger and abuse that he could not show in school. We're living with my grandmother and I'm in the kitchen being disciplined and I'm literally flying across the kitchen, hit the wall just as my mom came back in from shopping. And it was at that point she said, okay, she finally saw something happen. And she took the three kids away. We moved an hour away. Life became very different. It was a, it was a loving home. takes my hand and leads me in one of the most simple, beautiful sinner's prayer. And I just prayed and I agreed with everything she said. Then one day the Lord just said to me, I want you to forgive your father. And I said, well, Lord, I'm really trying. He said, no, face to face. And that's when it got, that's when it got really real. Uh, I, I, it was July 4th, 1982. So I walked over to my dad, and, and I go, um, Dad, I just wanted to tell you that I love you, and I forgive you for everything that ever happened. And he said nothing. But I put my arm around my dad, and I just touched his shoulder. The second I touched his shoulder, he began to weep, and he began to bend over, weeping and weeping. He takes his left hand and puts it around my waist to hold himself up. The second he touched my waist, I began to weep. And then I just turned and I put my arms around him and I hugged him. And then we walked, I walked away. And we never talked about that moment. But that night when I went to go say goodnight, no longer did I just shake his hand. I, I didn't even think about it. It was came, came time to say goodbye and I reached over and, and I just gave him this big bear hug. And he goes, whoa, whoa, that's different. He goes, wait a minute, come here, come here. So he, I bear hug him again and he hugs me and he goes, Let's do this. Let's, let, let's do this every time.
the doctor, the attending you know, physician, the resident, the anesthesiologist, they're all surrounding the, uh, his, his little uh, uh, bed. I just kind of lean over, grab his hand like this, and I go, love you, Dad. He looks at me and goes, we don't do this. And he just grabs my face and starts kissing me in front of the doctors. He turns my head and he goes, this is my son. Looks at the doctor and goes, he's great and I love him. And he puts me down. They take the stretcher and they start to wheel him away. And my father yells out, stop, I can't see my son. Turn the stretcher around. So they, they turn the stretcher around. The girl is pulling him back and he's blowing kisses. My eyes start to fill up with tears. So I blow him kisses, he blows me kisses, and he takes his finger like this and begins to kiss his finger and then kisses the other one and then starts shooting. They pull him in the, in the elevator and the door starts to close and I, I watch my dad lean with the door as the door is leaning. He leans over the edge. He kisses his thumb and puts it up like this as he winks at me as the door closes. And so we went to wait. And uh, they called, it's an hour procedure, and a little over an hour later they called us and we went. And the doctor came in with the anesthesiologist, which I didn't know why. And uh, he just said, I, I am very sorry to tell you um, that Mr. Dupre died on the table. In the middle of crying myself, all I could tell, every time I closed my eyes, I saw him kissing me. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw him holding my head and pointing at my face. I'm so proud of him. And that image has never left me. Every day I am convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that is, that's how my papa sees me. Not just my earthly father, my, my heavenly father. He smiles, he points at me. He turns to Michael the Arcade, that's my boy. I love this kid, I love him. I know that, that my God is, is, he's crazy about me. I'm his boy, uh, I'm his loved one and I don't have to do anything to prove it. My life is not a life of proving something. It's a life of living out of peace because I'm already loved. And thanks to Jesse for bringing us that peace. And thanks to Chris Dupre and, well, his heart. And forgiveness is something we talk about a lot here on this show. And what a gift the son gave the father. And by the way, Chris Dupre's son, if he has one, He's learning a lot watching his own father forgive his father. And we learn a lot by what we see and what we see our parents do. So if you're listening and there's someone you haven't forgiven, get to it. Get to it. Gandhi once said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. And Martin Luther King said this, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. This is Our American Story, a story of forgiveness, a great father-son story, Chris Dupre's story here on Our American Story. This 
is Our American Stories, and we try to give you every kind of story here on this show, from American history to the arts to sports, and stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and of course, business, and the great entrepreneurs and innovators of this great country, all of it. You can hear, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up, to subscribe to all that we do. We'll keep you up to date with a weekly newsletter. And go to iTunes and type in Our American Stories and search for our podcasts. There's so much there to enjoy. And now it's time for a story that's become legendary over the years. It's about a young criminal mastermind who was running away from the pain he was suffering over his parents' divorce. Though glamorized by Hollywood in the movie Catch Me If You Can, the first-hand account of what happened in the life of Frank Abagnale is just as remarkable as the film itself. Here's Jesse. Frank Abagnale is one of the best-known con men in American and perhaps world history. If you've seen Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can, you know what kind of criminal we're talking about. From 1964 to 1967, I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways, and I flew over 2 million miles for free. During that time, I was also the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital and an assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. By the time I was caught, I was considered the youngest and most daring con man in U.S. history. I had cashed almost $4 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and all 50 states. And I did it all before my 19th birthday. My name is Frank William Abagnale. While the film was highly entertaining, sometimes it's best just to get the story straight from the source. Especially when it's a story as convoluted as the one you're about to hear. Frank Abagnale spoke to Google what really happened in his transformation from one of the world's most notorious con men to an international cybersecurity superstar in film and print. The takeaways that he shares are the real deal. I was raised just north of New York City in Westchester County, New York. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. I was educated there by the Christian Brothers of Ireland in a private Catholic school called Iona, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school. Something happened in young Frank's life that would shake him to the core. His parents were getting a divorce. I remember being in the 10th grade when the father walked in the classroom one afternoon, asked a brother to excuse me from class. When I came out in the hallway, the father handed me my books and told me that one of the brothers would drive me to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I remember the brother dropped me at the steps of a big stone building and told me to go on up the steps and my parents would be waiting for me in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps, seeing a sign on the building that said family court, but I really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered into the back of an immense courtroom where my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, nor my parents' response, but eventually the judge saw me at the back of the room and motioned me to approach the bench, so I walked up to stand in between my parents. I remember distinctly that the judge never looked at me. He never acknowledged I was standing there. He simply read from his papers and said that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age, I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. Judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was gone. 
My mother never saw me again for about seven years until I was a young adult. Contrary to the movie, my father never saw me or ever spoke to me again. So Frank did what many young men would do faced with such a situation. He ran. In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, boarded what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad for the short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York. My father did own a stationery store in Manhattan. It was located on the corner of 40th and Madison. Like all of us, we had to work in that store, so from the time I was about 13, I made deliveries for my dad in the summer on a bike. I knew the city very well, so naturally, I started looking for the same type of work. There were a lot of signs on the window, stock boy, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? Uh, 16. How far did you go in high school? Uh, 10th grade. I'll hire you. And I went to work for a small amount of money, a few hours a day, but I soon realized I couldn't support myself on that amount of money. I also realized as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair. My friends in school used to say that once a week when we dressed in a suit for mass, I looked more like a teacher. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16. Back then, it didn't have a photo on it, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped the four, converted it to a three, and that made me 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more hours, but even then it was very difficult to make ends meet. By now you've probably noticed that Frank is an excellent storyteller, as you might expect a great con man to be. One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. I had money from work on the summers. I had some money in that checking account. So every so often I would write a check to supplement my income, $20, $25. The funds were there, the checks were good, but it was my friends, my peers, who would constantly say to me, you know, you're the only guy who walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan. You have no account there. You don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind a desk and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good. Yeah, but if I walked in there, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in there, they don't bat an eye. Now, years later, reporters would write and speculate and say that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. Of course, the checks started to bounce. Police started looking for me as a runaway. So I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago or Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan. As the young con artist was just beginning to play with the world as he saw fit, Frank Abagnale would soon assume his role as the airline pilot. I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Commodore Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. Just as I was about to get to the front door of the hotel, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. I couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in the van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it, I could pose as a pilot. I could travel all over the world for free. I probably could get just about anybody anywhere to cash a check for me. 
So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park. I went to cross over. I heard a huge helicopter. So I looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world. I thought, what a perfect airline to use. So the next day I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. I remember distinctly when the phone was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, can I help you? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'd, like um, I'd like to speak to somebody in the uh, purchasing department. Purchasing? One moment. And the clerk came on and said, yes, sir, maybe you can help me. My name is uh, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with the company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years, but never had anything like this come up before. Oh, what's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out later today. Uh, yesterday, I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry clean. Now the hotel and the cleaners say they can't find it. Yeah, I'm with the flight in about four hours. New uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly. Back home in San Francisco, but I never get it here in time for my flight. Uh, do you understand this will cost you the price of uniform, not the company? Well, I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. He came back and said, my supervisor says you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on the way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know. So I went down to the well-built uniform company. Little fellow, Mr. Rosen, fit me out in the uniform, the black Aberdeen, with three gold stripes on the arm. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When he was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. So no problem, I'll write you a check. No, um, <laughs> we can't take any checks. Oh, well, then I'll... Um, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, put your employee number. Then we bill this back on the uniform allowance. Comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. Well, that's even better. Go ahead and do that. <laughs> when we come back, the technical logistics behind pulling off a con that would fool a major airline into cashing checks and letting you fly around the world for free. It all started with the fake ID. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the story of the real-life Frank Abagnale, as told by Frank himself. He successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan Am World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, a Louisiana parish prosecutor, and now we return to his story. Here's Jesse. Logistics of securing a fake airline pilot ID badge with the intent of using it to get on and off or in and out of a plane seems like a daunting task, to say the least. But Frank, Frank makes it sound so easy. I was sitting in the hotel room. I noticed a big, thick Manhattan yellow pages, so I pulled them down on the bed, flipped them open, and looked under the word identification. 
There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges. Started to call around, and finally one company said, Listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company, need to call one of them. Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system, along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major U.S. carrier. I'm in New York just for the day. We're getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. I wonder if I came by your office this afternoon briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by dressed in a suit and the sales rope opened the book. Yeah, we do United, Braniff, National, Pan Am, Pan Am. We like this Pan Am format. I wonder if you have a sample I could bring back. Sure, I'll be right back. And he brought me back a five by seven glossy piece of paper with a picture of an ID card blown up in the middle of it. Someone else's picture in the picture. John Doe for a name, and in bold red ink across the front, this is a sample only. I said, no, I'm afraid this one do you know, I need to bring back an actual physical card. And by the way, what is all this equipment on the floor? Oh, now, we don't just sell these cards, we sell the system, camera, laminator. Oh, we have to buy all this? Absolutely. But tell you what, since we have to buy it all, why don't we just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine, have a seat right here. Took my picture and there's the card. Just imagine being a 17-year-old kid with the ability to fly all over the world pretending to be a pilot while cashing bad checks at every airport along the way and becoming filthy rich in the process. Once the sky's the limit, how high one can fly. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18, I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says, keep in mind the fact that Frank Abagnale did, in fact, pose as one of our pilots for a long period of time. He never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been out there 16 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport, walked up on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago, then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, hey, Pan Am, what can we do for you? I wonder if the jump seats open on 800 need to did at Chicago. It's open this evening, I'd like to get a pink slip pass. I'd give him my ID, write me out a pass, I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant, she'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a seat behind the captain called the jump suit, where pilots deadhead on company time. Now, being a criminal mastermind is a lot of work, and Frank was bringing the hustle, scamming banks and airlines from 9 to 5. I'd go down the Parma House Hilton, walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said, Airline Cruise. That was a three-ring binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID. They'd give me a key. I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk because I was an employee of the airline. The airline had a contract with the hotel, and as a courtesy, they'd cash your check. But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check. Actually, a reciprocal agreement still practiced today in 2017. So at the San Francisco airport, a Delta flight attendant can walk up to an American airline ticket counter, show her ID, and cash a personal check up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK or LAX, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air France, 
it would take me a good eight hours stopping at every counter and every building. By the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. And what did you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people. So I'd go all the way back around the other way again. Impersonating pilots, doctors, lawyers, flying all over the world with millions of dollars he'd built out of every bank that would cash his check. He was inevitably caught. Of course, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught, and I was no exception to that rule. I was actually arrested just once in my life when I was 21 years old by the French police in a small town in southern France called Montpellier. The French police were actually arresting me on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police, who were looking for me for forgery in Sweden but believed that I was living in France. When the French authorities took me into custody on that warrant, they realized I had forged checks all over France, so they refused to honor the warrant and Sweden's request for my extradition. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called the Maison d'Array, the house of arrest in a small town in southern France called Pepignan. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, it was extremely important to me to go back to that cell, to the exact cell he was in, and reconstruct it according to the logbooks during his stay there. He said, to my amazement, that was a blanket on the floor, no mattress, a hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. He said, according to the logbooks, I entered the prison at 198 pounds, left the prison at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over in France, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was later convicted of forgery in a Swedish court of law, and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmö, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities took custody of me and returned me to the United States. Eventually, a United States federal judge in Atlanta, Georgia, would sentence me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of the 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. I agreed and was released. That agency is the FBI, where Frank continues to work to this day. This year I'm celebrating 41 years at the FBI. I've been at the Bureau for more than four decades. I work out of Washington, D.C. I actually make my home in Charleston, South Carolina. So every Monday I fly up to Washington, about an hour flight, and I go home on Thursday evenings. I live in Charleston with my one and only wife of 40 plus years and my three sons. And when we come back, Frank Abagnale shares his thoughts of regret and remorse over his criminal life as a young man. Find out what really happened right here on Our American Stories. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. And what a story, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. You hear from the people themselves as often as possible about their own stories, your stories too. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up there, register with us, give us some details, and we'll be able to get back in touch with you about all that we do each week. And again, go to iTunes and search for Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Frank Abagnale. What a story, folks. Just a little bit different than the movie. More after these messages. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near. You may. 
Cause we're together Weather-wise It's such a lovely day Just say the words And we'll beat the birds Down to Acapulco Bay It's perfect For a flying honeymoon They say Come fly with me Let's fly, let's fly away Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied we'll... This is Our American Stories and we return to the story of Frank Abagnale who was played beautifully by Leonardo DiCaprio in Steven Spielberg's highly entertaining 2002 film, Catch Me If You Can. By the way, it did worldwide ticket sales of over $350 million, or six times more than the $52 million the movie cost to make. The film was shot in more than 140 locations in just 52 days. That's an average of almost three locations a day, many of them in and around L.A., but quite a few in New York, Montreal... And as anyone who's worked on a film set can tell you, even a move of a few blocks is a pretty big undertaking. Spielberg and his crew worked fast. And now back to the real story of Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can. Here's Jesse. In this candid speech that the real-life Frank Abagnale gave to Google about his criminally mischievous adventures... He doesn't see himself as a legend of any sort, and unlike how he might be perceived by his fans, is ultimately remorseful for the sins of his youth. As many of you know, I had very little to do with the film. Um, I would have preferred not to have a movie made about my life. I actually raised my three boys in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the same house for 25 years. My neighbors had no idea who I was. And I would have preferred it stayed that way. But Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters he felt compelled to tell the world the story, not because of what I did, but because of what I'd done with my life after that. He loved the redemption side of the story, wanted the world to know the story. So in the end, my family and I were very pleased with the outcome of the film, but we thought in a couple of years that would all be forgotten and move on with our life. I never dreamed that Catch Me If You Can would go on to earn more than a billion dollars for DreamWorks and be shown over and over, literally every week on HBO and TV, and then become a Broadway musical and a TV show. So consequently, every Monday morning when I come to work, I have emails. They come from all over the world. Someone who's seeing the movie for the first time, watching the play at a community theater or a high school somewhere, and they feel compelled to write. And, of course, they come from people literally as young as eight years old sending those emails to people as old as 80. Most people assume I'll never read those emails or see those emails, but they feel compelled to write and they want to make a statement. Some say, you know, you were brilliant. You were an absolute genius. I was neither. I was just a child. Had it been brilliant, had it been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. 
And while I know that people are fascinated by what I did some 50 years ago as a teenage boy, I've always looked upon what I did as something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, and a burden I live with literally every single day of my life and will until my death. The great Frank Abagnale, one of the greatest con men in history, haunted by the immoral and unethical acts of theft and forgery. It turns out that Frank had been running away from his parents' divorce since he was a child. There are many who write and say, well, you know, you were certainly gifted. That I was. I was one of those few children that got to grow up in the world with a daddy. Now, the world is, the world is full of fathers. But there are very few men worthy of being called daddy by their child. I had a daddy. Loved his children more than he loved life itself. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, the mirror I researched Frank's youth. Now, without having met Frank, I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. My father was a man who had four children, three boys and a daughter. Every night at bedtime, he'd walk into your room. He was 6'3". He would drop down on one knee, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up, and he'd put his lip up on your earlobe and he'd whisper deep into your ear, I love you. I love you very much. He never ever missed a night. As I grew older, I sometimes fell asleep before he got home, but I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been at my bedside. Years later, my older brother joined me in my room temporarily. He was in the Marine Corps. He was 6'4". He played semi-pro football for Buffalo, but my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear. He loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. Much as we'd like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, they need their mother and they need their father. All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger, a judge, told me I had to choose one parent over the other. That was a choice a 16-year-old boy could not make. So I ran. While Frank was running farther away from the pain of his parents' divorce, his father had an accident, and Frank never got to say goodbye. How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day in a hotel room somewhere in the world where people didn't speak my language. The only people that associated with me were people who believed me to be their peer, 10 years older than I actually was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would think otherwise. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad gets up in the middle of the night and goes down the TV room? Because, you know, he doesn't turn the TV on. He just sits there all night. That's because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs of New York as he did every day. He was in great physical shape. He just happened to trip. He reached his arm to break his fall. He slipped, hit his head on a railing. Landed at the bottom of the step, he was dead. I didn't know he was dead. 
I was thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that. With all the ups and downs in Frank's life, he remains grateful to the country that gave him a second chance. In closing this speech that you can hear again at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the great Frank Abagnale's crown achievement isn't his famously criminal shenanigans, but his family. This is Our American Stories. I was very fortunate because I was raised in a great country where everyone gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I can ever repay it over these past four decades. That is why I'm at the FBI today, 32 years after the federal court order expired requiring me to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, that a piece of paper will excuse my actions, that only in the end my actions will. Forty-plus years ago, on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. When the assignment was over, I broke protocol to tell her who I really was. I didn't have a dime to my name, but I eventually asked her to marry me. Against the wishes of her parents, she did. Now, I could sit up here and tell you that I was born again, I, I saw the light, prison rehabilitated me, but the truth is, God gave me a wife, she gave me three beautiful children, she gave me a family, and she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today, is because of the love of a woman. And the respect three boys have for their father, something I would never, ever jeopardize. There comes a time in all of our lifetime, we grow older, and eventually, if we're fortunate enough, we have children. And as every parent knows, whether your child's three months old or 38 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night, you're just about to close your eyes. The last thing you think about, the last thing you worry about, are your children. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give him a hug, you give him a kiss, you tell him you love him, why you can. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I would remind you what it truly is to actually be a man. It has absolutely nothing to do with money achievements, skills, accomplishments, degrees, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man next to God and his country put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile, nothing that's actually brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to be every day of my life, a great daddy. God bless you, and thanks for coming this morning. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. And that's a heck of a story. That dad who whispered I love you in his ear every night, never missed a night, Frank remembers. I cried myself to sleep until I was 19 years old. And he never wanted that pardon. Didn't want it. Wanted to remember what he did. And of course, talking about family, which we do so much of here on this show, he thanks God first, he thanks his wife second, and the family, and that's what it's all about. And for any of you contemplating divorce, you're hearing or... Thinking about this story, as you contemplate that divorce, think about it. Think about your kids. Think about reconciling. Think about forgiving. 
Think about keeping it together. Because listen to young Frank. You can still hear that young voice, that pain of that divorce. And it is devastating. You heard it from Frank Abagnale himself. This is Our American Stories. Frank Abagnale's story. In a way, his entire family's story. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org again to hear that story and all that we do. Mm-hmm.